get out my pub. Alright. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another captivating episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who only enjoys the finest microplastics in his tap water, Jay. What's up? <laughs> That's very true. Um, I prefer the ones that have been heated so they, like, melt into your system quicker. <laughs> you know, it's... it's- the Cadillac of your microplastics. That's right, man. We joke, but it's bad. It's bad, bad. What's going on with you? Oh, not a whole lot. Uh, it's really hard to... So this this time I'm taking over the topic and the script mm-hmm. without really your input. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... Some of these stories, man, I mean, I know they're hard to research, but I have, God, I don't know, 20 tabs open. I just, like, looked at it and didn't like it and rewrote a bunch of it this morning. You know, just one of these things about paranormal and conspiratorial topics, it's really hard to confirm details. Yeah, there is a lot of mystery and urban legend in this story. Yeah, what was bothering me this morning was, like, certain things that I had written in the first draft... Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, well, I don't, I don't know that I've seen this anywhere else. Or I don't know that I've seen that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But maybe we should stop teasing everybody. And well, I guess first you need to tell them what they need to know. So what y'all need to know is what Ryan tells you every every week. Please like, subscribe, share, and write a review. If, if you really don't want to share, just write us a, a good review. That will really help us out. We want your input on everything. This is for you. Now, we're not going to, you know, just do UFOs from now on or just do hauntings. But we want your input on what you want to hear. And you can give us that at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our TikTok, which has a few short stories, a few teasers, and some beats at cryptique underscore podcast. And you can find us on YouTube. We have a couple podcasts up, some beats and some shorts at Cryptic Podcast. I believe we are at Evil Podcast on Twitter. You can find our merch at crypticpodcaststore.com and check out the link to the Parabox Mystery T-shirt subscription service, which will be located in the show notes. So, what are we talking about today? So, we are talking about something I've been fascinated with for years, which is the Lemp Mansion. Nestled on Demonil Place in St. Louis, a historic city that rests on the west bank of the Mississippi, stands an imposing edifice that bears witness to the passage of time and the ebb and flow of fortunes, the Lemp Mansion. Its location is convenient and commanding, mere steps away from the bustling Broadway and a stone's throw from the shimmering waters of the river. Built in the early 1860s, the mansion is a marvel of Italianate architecture, exuding an aura of grandeur and timeless elegance that belies the tragic history that it harbors. From its towering roof peaks to the ornate trellises that adorn the expansive facade, every corner of the mansion whispers tales of the illustrious and doomed Lemp family. Inside, the mansion continues to astound with its opulent turn-of-the-century decor. High ceilings and rich woodwork convey a sense of historic grandeur, while the antique furnishings transport visitors back to a bygone era of luxury. In its prime, the mansion was a symbol of wealth and status, complete with a ballroom, auditorium, swimming pool, elevator, and an intricate tunnel system in the basement that led to a natural limestone cave used for brewing and storing beer, which I would love to have. (laughs) Beyond its architectural prowess, the Lemp Mansion holds a prominent place in St. Louis history. It was the embodiment of the American dream, achieved by an immigrant family who had climbed the ladder of success only to tragically plummet from grace. For nearly a century, it was the epicenter of one of the greatest beer empires the world had ever seen, only to become a symbol of its devastating decline. 
It was a place of revelry and luxury, yet it also became a setting for untimely deaths, scandals, and haunting tales that continue to fascinate people to this day. To truly understand the Lent Mansion, one must journey into the past and explore the lives, ambitions, triumphs, and tragedies of the family that built it, the Lemps. The echoes of their footsteps, laughter, tears, and whispers still permeate the mansion's grand halls, a silent testament to a family dynasty that once reigned supreme, only to crumble under the weight of its own tragedies. All right, you want me to tell you about the Lemp family and the establishment of the brewery? I would love that. Well, in 1836, Johann, or, you know, everybody's nickname for Johann is Adam. <laughs> so, you know, Adam is short for Johann. Uh, Lemp, a German immigrant, arrived in the United States before settling in St. Louis, Missouri in 1838 to seek his fortune. He opened a grocery store where he also sold his homemade beer, brewed following a family recipe. The beer, unlike the ales common in the U.S. at the time, was a lager, a type of beer popular in Adam's homeland. The distinct taste and superior quality of Adam's lager quickly captivated the local patrons, paving the way for his future success in the brewing industry. Recognizing the potential, Adam shifted his business focus entirely to brewing and established the Western Brewery at 37 South 2nd Street, a site currently occupied by the southern foot of the Gateway Arch. Benefiting from the large German immigrant population in St. Louis who were already familiar with lager-style beers, his brewery saw an incredible surge in popularity. The Western Brewery grew and thrived as one of 40 breweries in the city by the 1860s, eventually becoming one of the largest in St. Louis. Adam's success was a testament to his skill as a brewer and a businessman. After Adam's death in 1862, his son, William J. Lemp, took over the family business. By this time, William had already completed an education at St. Louis University and worked for the family business before leaving to attempt a partnership with other brewers. In 1861, he enlisted in the Army and reached the rank of Orderly Sergeant and married Julie Feichert. He began building a larger brewery above the natural limestone caves under Demonel Place, where Western Brewery had already been storing its goods. This new plant was an early adopter of the practice of brewing and bottling in the same location. He further innovated by implementing the use of refrigeration and refrigerated railway cars as a revolutionary concept in the industry that allowed the Lemp family to be the first to successfully distribute their beer across the country. With the wealth accumulated from the thriving beer business, William Lemp built a magnificent mansion in the Italianate style in 1868. The mansion, known as the Lemp Mansion, was a testament to the family's prosperity and influence in St. Louis. Under the guidance of William Lemp, the Lemp Brewery continued to flourish, and by the 1870s, it was the largest brewery in St. Louis and the third largest in the country. I didn't know they got that big, wow. The Lemp family had risen to prominence and was recognized as one of the leading dynasties in the American beer industry. However, the golden age of the Lemp family was to be overshadowed by a series of personal tragedies and misfortunes, marking the beginning of the end of their prosperous era. Tell us about the first generation of tragedies. The cascade of tragedies that befell the Lemp family began with Frederick Lemp's untimely death in 1901. This unexpected demise deeply impacted William Sr., who already bore the weight of overseeing the brewery that had become a hallmark of St. Louis. The passing of his fourth and favorite son and intended successor to the Lemp Brewery Empire sent him spiraling into despair. The Lemp Mansion, once filled with laughter and celebration, gradually sank into a brooding silence, its rooms echoing the heavy footsteps of a grieving father. In the midst of this gloom, another blow was dealt. William Sr.'s best friend, Frederick Pabst, also passed away. This double loss was more than William could bear as he lost interest in the daily operations of running the brewery, as his mental and physical health began to deteriorate. On February 13, 1904, he ended his life with a revolver, leaving his family and the legacy of the Lemp Brewery reeling in his wake. Following his father's tragic end, William Lemp Jr., known as Billy, took over the reins of the family business. At first, he seemed determined to restore the brewery to its former glory. 
Billy modernized the brewing process, expanded production, and built an auditorium, office building, and a plant to make refrigeration machines. But even as he worked tirelessly to keep the Lemp legacy alive, Billy's personal life was filled with scandal and heartbreak. His relationship with his wife, Lillian Handlin, was a volatile one. Known as the Lavender Lady for her fondness of the color, Lillian was a beautiful and refined woman, but their marriage was far from harmonious. When Billy began to tire of his beautiful trophy wife, he tried to get rid of her by demanding that she must spend her time shopping. Allotting her $1,000 a day, he gave her an ultimatum that if she didn't spend it, she would get no more. Wow. And I wrote a note in here, if you take 1900-ish money and convert that for today, that's $36,000. A day? A day. Although, a bunch of sources say that Billy spent money very irresponsibly. Yeah. It seems really irresponsible, but I did find this thousand dollars per day at multiple sources. Wow! Yeah, what could you buy for a thousand dollars a day today? I don't I know. I mean, man. I couldn't imagine. I mean, that's like going out and buying a new car every single day. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. It's like, okay, I'm gonna buy uh, an Outback today, and I don't what? know. Then a what? charger tomorrow. What are you, you going to get after the Outback? <laughs> and where That's do you put it much, all? Can't go up from there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. While Billy ran the Lemp Brewing Empire during the day, his nightlife consisted of other unsavory activities. He held luxurious parties in the caves below the mansion and reportedly brought in a number of prostitutes to help entertain his friends and guests. Because that's what rich people do. They just bring prostitutes. Could you imagine going to a party like your buddy's like, hey, I'm having a barbecue. You sh you guys should come over and hang out. We'll drink some beer and, you know, hang out in the pool. And you go over there and he's like, hey, there's like 10 hookers in the basement <laughs> if you want to <laughs> head down for a little while. It's crazy. The the Lent Mansion has the, the like the ballroom auditorium, all that right. stuff is in the tunnels. They're in the okay. tunnels below, in the caves below the house. There's all that's also where the the pool and all that is, which is super cool. It it is, and and I wasn't saying it as in reference to their placement, you know, in the ground or above ground. I just thought it was funny to think like, you know, going to a buddy's house. They're like, yep, you know where the hookers are. Right? Yeah, we got beer in the cooler and hookers in the basement. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I bet Count St. Germain was there, too. It's his enigmatic ass. Not eating anything, just standing around <laughs> watching. Don't you like the beer? <laughs> I much prefer the blood. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Eventually, Lillian, the Lavender Lady, would file for divorce in 1908, citing desertion and cruel treatment after having had enough public humiliation and scandal. And funny enough, in my research, I... I found a bunch of sources that said Billy divorced her and a bunch that said she divorced him, but more convincing ones saying that she was the one that initiated it, which was pretty unusual for the time. It, it would be, but good for her if she did, because, you know, she's getting all this money to spend, you know, mm -hmm. and but she's still like, well, I'm not going to be, you know, cheated on with prostitutes. Right. The divorce proceedings soon turned into a sensational scandal that drew extensive media attention. The courtroom was packed daily as onlookers eagerly anticipated the latest revelations of violence, drunkenness, atheism, and cruelty. Lillian, despite the damage to her reputation suffered during the trial, managed to retain custody of their son, William Lamp III. However, after this public ordeal, she withdrew from public life, a pale shadow of her former radiant self. On the business front, things were not going well either. In 1906, nine large breweries in St. Louis combined to form the Independent Breweries Company, a major competitor that the Lent Brewery had never faced before. The formation of this conglomerate, coupled with the death of Billy's mother from cancer, sent the Lent Brewery on a downward spiral from which it never recovered. Billy's woes did not end with his failing business and broken marriage. Adding to his troubles, he was increasingly neglectful of the company's equipment, allowing it to fall into disrepair while failing to keep up with industry innovations. By the time World War I broke out, the once Great Lent Brewery was barely surviving. Despite the dire situation, Billy didn't lose all hope. He had the Lent Mansion remodeled in 1911, with part of it converted into offices for the brewery. He even found love again and married Ellie Lindbergh, although love I kind of questioned. 
And it's it's Limberg. It's L-I-M-B-E-R-G. It's not a Lindberg, just so right. we're clear. Right. And she was the widow daughter of another St. Louis brewer. Uh, and they married in 1915. However, his retreat to a country home on the Merrimack River hinted at his growing disillusionment with the state of his business and personal life. Then in 1919, the final nail was driven into the coffin of the Lemp Brewery. Prohibition. The legislation banned the production, importation, and sale of alcoholic beverages, effectively rendering the brewery useless. While the family was wealthy enough to weather the financial storm, the will to fight was absent. After hoping briefly for a repeal of prohibition, Billy finally accepted the inevitable. Unable to adapt to the changing times, Billy made the difficult decision to shut down the brewery in 1922 and sell its assets at auction. The brewery was shut down and the Falstaff trademark was sold to Lem's friend, Papa Joe. How would you pronounce this name? I'm curious. It's definitely Greasy Dick. Yep. It, it is, really is. That is how I, you pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, I, and I just happen to know like a... a father the unfortunately he's father greasy dick yep g-r-i-e-s-e-d-i-e-c-k is how you spell it but yeah that is that is how you pronounce the name the brewery complex was sold at auction to the international shoe company for five hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars, despite being valued at around seven million before prohibition the once mighty lemp brewery one of the largest in the nation was sold for pennies on the dollar this part of the story ends with the Lamb family in turmoil, their brewing empire in ruins, and their personal lives marked by scandal and tragedy. The once vibrant Lamp mansion, now a symbol of faded glory, stands silent and brooding, mirroring the family's precipitous decline. Yet, this was just the beginning of the Lamp family curse, as the mansion and its inhabitants were about to face even darker days ahead. So do you want to get into the second generation and their problems? I will get into the second generation with their problems and scandals after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. The mansion, the Limp Mansion, once a symbol the illustrious Limp Empire had become a tomb of tragedies and a reminder of their fall. With the closure of the brewery, the Limp Mansion was largely unused and fell into a period of decline and disrepair. Billy spent most of his days at his country home, away from the depressing side of his family's empire and ruin. His once robust personality was dulled by the countless setbacks he had faced. Still, life had one more cruel card to play. In 1922, Billy lost his beloved sister, Elsa Lemp-Wright, the wealthiest heiress in St. Louis. Elsa Lemp-Wright, the youngest child of William Sr., found love and married Thomas Wright, the man at the helm of the Moore Jones Brass and Metal Company, back in 1910. As it often happens in life, their marital bliss didn't last forever, and in 1918, the couple found themselves living apart. By February 1919, Elsa took the drastic step of filing for divorce, citing the significant toll on her mental and physical well-being amongst her reasons. The divorce trial that ensued ended in Elsa's favor, granting her the freedom she was looking for. However, in a twist that surprised many, Elsa and Thomas decided to work through their problems and remarry in March 1920. The reconciliation, however, was tragically short-lived. In a devastating turn of events, Elsa ended her life with a gunshot while lying in bed at their residence at 13 Hortense Place on March 20th, the same month of their remarriage. There are some who cast a shadow of doubt over Elsa's death, though, suggesting it may have been a cleverly disguised murder. This intriguing theory is being explored in an upcoming feature film titled The Case for Elsa Limp. Additionally, there's a buzz about a five-part series titled Limp's Last Rite that's slated to make its premiere in November 2023, further stoking the flame of interest around the enigmatic Limp family saga. <laughs> in the aftermath of the Limp Brewing Empire's dissolution, the mansion's once lively halls mirrored the gloom of its primary inhabitant, William Jr., 
The legacy of success and prosperity became a daunting shadow, plunging him into a deep depression akin to his father's. Like his father, he became reclusive and unpredictable, withdrawing from the public eye, his health seemingly in decline. His public appearances dwindled and he sought the solitude of his mansion, his complaints of various maladies echoing in the empty halls. On a cold day in December 1922, the mansion was rocked by the echo of a gunshot. William Jr., succumbing to his despair, had taken his own life in the same building his father had died in 18 years prior. He had chosen the room to the left of the entrance, his office. His once bustling workplace was now the silent witness to his untimely demise. With the 38 caliber revolver, he had shot himself in the heart, marking another tragic chapter in the Lemp family history. His body was later discovered in that office, a grim scene testifying to the depth of his solitude and despair. So, a couple things I'm thinking about here. One, almost never does somebody shoot themselves in the heart to commit suicide, right? Yeah, it's really... I. I suspect it's easy to mess up. Yeah. Which is why you wouldn't want to do that. You'd want to make sure that you do it right. Right. And you would think that if you're rich, you would want to go ahead and grab like a 45 or something. And I mean, a 38's strong enough to do the trick, of course, but I don't know. I just feel like you'd be risking a life of, you know, being in a wheelchair or something. Yeah, it seemed strange that when I looked into these where I could find a type of gun or a caliber Mm -hmm. they were all listed as 38s pretty much Hmm. so it must have just been super common back then I'm sure it was common but I I don't know I think if you're rich you're gonna go ahead and you know grab a higher caliber but I I guess I don't know maybe it depends I guess on what you think you need it for but I would also like to know if there were like powder burns on his chest and stuff because that just I don't know anyway it just adds to the enigma you know (laughs) yeah as per the family tradition he was buried in the limp family mausoleum at Bellefontaine Cemetery his crypt positioned just above his sister Elsa's He joined the generations of Lemps, their shared fate, a poignant reminder of their legacy of wealth, success, and ultimately, tragedy. The remaining Lemp siblings, Charles and Edwin, had distanced themselves from both the family business and the mansion. Charles lived in the mansion for a while, leading a solitary life, while Edwin had retreated to a secluded estate in the country. It's nice that these, you know, families, even though they're struck with financial you know ruin they're like huh now we're gonna have to live out the rest of our lives in our country mansion it's gonna be terrible <laughs> i uh, mean I don't you're, know. you're such a compassionate person <laughs> obviously i would never wish tragedy on a family yeah. unless they you know really deserved it there's a few of them out there where it's like yeah but you know i would never wish tragedy on people i just think that people's level of suffering differs a little bit when it's like oh my husband killed himself now i have nothing i there's no one that works in the family we're not going to be able to pay for our rent and you know stuff Mm -hmm. like that so anyway interestingly charles had left the brewery business back in 1917 choosing to try his luck in banking and finance He was a man of many talents and interests, dabbling in the world of politics and exerting influence over parts of the city. And that doesn't sound very nice. You know, exerting influence is kind of sounds negative to me. Mm. Despite his public endeavors, Charles was a private man at heart. He never married and preferred the company of his loyal canine companion in the mansion along with the presence of two servants, a wedded pair who helped maintain the estate. Well, even in the wake of tragedy, one person definitely needs two people to serve them. Totally. In a foreboding gesture, in April 1941, Charles sent a letter to a South St. Louis funeral home outlining explicit instructions to be carried out upon his death. 
He requested that upon his passing, his remains were to be transported via ambulance to the Missouri crematory with strict instructions not to bathe, clothe, or alter his body in any way. His ashes were to be placed in a wicker box and quietly laid to rest on his farm. A clear directive stated that there should be no funeral or obituary announcement in the newspapers. As fate would have it, eight years following this eerie missive, Charles ended his life in a manner tragically reminiscent of his family's history. He shot his faithful dog and then shot himself in the head. He was found still holding the Army Colt revolver, leaving behind a suicide note that read, quote, St. Louis, Missouri, May 9, 1949. In case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. Charles A. Lemp. End quote. His final note, the only confirmed suicide note, marked the end of an era in the Lemp family history. Yeah, and that note, I, I kept running across blogs and stories where they would claim that other members of the family had left notes mm -hmm. you know like that William Sr. had left a note saying I can't sleep I can't sleep mm -hmm. or you know whatever that other other family members had left notes but this was the only one where there was any kind of confirmation that he had actually left a note so there's speculation out there as to whether or not the others did and what kind of stuff it might have said but yeah, in case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. Like, in case. Yeah. Like, he was attempting to do something else. I don't know. It's very strange. It, it is strange. And then to hear, you know, that there's the theory that there were other notes saying, I can't sleep. Well, when you're being haunted at night, it's hard to sleep. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Following Charles' demise, the torch of the limp lineage fell to Edwin Limp, the sole surviving son of William Sr., the second oldest son, Louis Lemp, had passed away from natural causes in 1931, leaving Edwin as the last leaf on the Lemp family tree. Edwin, the youngest of the Lemp brood, had been part of the family brewery until 1913. He chose to step away from the hustle and bustle of the brewery life to retire in serenity at Cragwald, a splendid estate he had constructed back in 1911, overlooking the picturesque Merrimack River. Cragwold. Just sounds beautiful. Totally. Nestled in the western reaches of Kirkwood was more than just a home. It was an oasis boasting an observation tower, two separate houses for servants, and a rich tapestry of wildlife that included birds, antelope, sheep, yaks, buffalo, and an array of other creatures. This retreat served as Edwin's sanctuary, where he lived in harmony with nature. You want to tell us about his after his retirement sure and just as a note this estate still exists mm -hmm. and i think i know they do some kind of tours there's something that they do with it where you can go but i haven't looked into it i just i know that it still is out there and you can go see it all right after his retirement edwin pivoted his focus toward philanthropy pouring his time and resources into various charitable causes his primary passion lay with the St. Louis Zoo, where his love for animals found a broader canvas. In 1970, the curtain finally fell on the Lemp family saga with Edwin's death at the ripe age of 90. His final directive to his caretaker was as drastic as it was absolute, to destroy his prized art collection and cherished family heirlooms. In one swift move, he sought to erase the tangible symbols of the Lemp legacy, leaving behind a fascinating history that continues to echo through time. So the strange thing I wanted to point out is the last thing he, he he instructed his servants to do was to destroy his art collection and family heirlooms. I think maybe he thinks they're haunted. Some of the sources I read, and again, it's something that I couldn't confirm, said that, you know, he had left a note or, you know, something in his will that said that all of his possessions, his art, his heirlooms, everything related to the Lemp family was to be destroyed or burned. Mm -hmm. It said not sold, not repurposed, destroyed. Huh. You know, and there are people who speculate that this is to try to stop this Lemp family curse or whatever. Yeah. But there's something tied to the family and to their objects. I mean, that definitely could be. I, I think that great-grandson, whatever, great-great-grandson were... You know, they're like, hey, we have this uh, 
art collection that's worth millions, but you have to burn it all. You can't sell it. You know, yeah, you got to you got to work at Walmart. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it's not that, but the Lent Mansion had three or I think has three vaults, mm. which were used in part to store their art collection. <laughs> it sounds like you're having the trouble with tribbles over there. <laughs> it's one of the rabbits. He's freaking out right now. We can just leave this <laughs> in so the the audience can know what we deal with. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so what what happened to the mansion at this point? Oh, the Lemp Mansion and the remaining Lemp Brewery property were sold after Charles's death. By the 1950s, the Lemp Mansion had been transformed into a boarding house. Its sprawling rooms chopped into smaller spaces to accommodate the needs of transient tenants. The charm of the mansion was all but lost in the utilitarian approach of the era, the ornate woodwork hidden beneath layers of cheap paint, the stately rooms filled with the mundane clutter of ordinary lives. The mansion fell into disrepair, the once meticulously maintained grounds overgrown and the imposing structure slowly decaying. Yet the Lemp Mansion had not been completely forgotten. There were those who still remembered the mansion in its glory days and the family that had lived within its wall. Among them was a local businessman named Dick Pointer. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't expect you to have that surprise in your voice when you got to that name. Yeah. Well, come on, man. It's you unfortunate. Know, yeah. Well, you could go by Rich, Richie, Richard, Ricardo. Ricardo Pointer. <laughs> I mean... Anything is better than Dick Pointer. <laughs> I feel like that name's in your search history somewhere, too. No, anyway. <laughs> no, I knew who bought it without having to look it up. I don't. Yeah, that, well, I'm, I'm already in a special file with Google. I don't need to put that in there. As, uh, as most Dick Pointers, he recognized the potential in the dilapidated building, seen beyond the wear and tear of the years to the opulence that lay beneath. And maybe it's the names that are the curse. You know, you got Greasy Dick, Dick Pointer. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was 1975. It's not like it was, you know, 1712, where maybe Dick wasn't a... Right, didn't mean what it means now. A body yeah. part. <laughs> In 1975... Pointer and his family bought the mansion, undeterred by the task that lay ahead of them. The process of restoration was a laborious one, requiring not just significant financial investment, but also a level of commitment and love for the building and its history. The mansion needed more than just a fresh coat of paint and minor repairs. It needed to be brought back to life, and that was exactly what the Pointer family intended to do. They began by removing the layers of paint that had covered the intricate woodwork, revealing the craftsmanship that had been hidden for years. That would be so hard, like if somebody was a woodworker and they go in and they're like, fuck, you painted over all this? Why would you do that? But anyway, the damaged parts of the mansion were carefully repaired with every effort made to preserve the original elements. Where preservation was not possible, replication was done to maintain the historical accuracy. Beyond the physical restoration, the Pointer family sought to bring back the spirit of the mansion. They researched the history of the Lemp family, collecting artifacts, photographs, and other memorabilia that could provide a glimpse into the lives of the mansion's original inhabitants. These items were put on display within the mansion, creating a tangible link to its past and pretty much going directly against everything that the last Lemp told them to do right like they're supposed to get rid of everything and right. now it's all back well not necessarily all of it but at least some of it mm -hmm. despite the considerable effort and cost the renovation was not a speedy process but as the years went by the Lemp mansion slowly began to regain its grandeur under the careful stewardship of the pointer family the mansion was once again a sight to behold, standing as a testament to a bygone era whose story was inexorably intertwined with that of St. Louis itself. Today, the Lent Mansion is not just a beautifully restored piece of history, it's a place where the past comes alive, 
where one can walk through its halls and catch a glimpse of the grandeur and the tragedy of the Lemp family's history. But as the sun sets and the shadows lengthen, visitors might also feel a different kind of presence, a spectral reminder of the mansion's haunted past. The new Lemp mansion was a far cry from its earlier grandeur, drink, but it retained a sense of its historic charm. With the restaurant, inn, and the inclusion of a dinner theater, the mansion was once again a lively place, attracting locals and tourists alike. The mansion's rich history, coupled with the eerie tales of hauntings, added to its unique appeal. Yet, behind its renewed vitality, the mansion held many secrets. Secrets that would soon come to the surface and confirm its reputation as one of the most haunted houses in America. Let's take a quick break and then we'll learn about the aftermath of the Limp Empire. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us about the aftermath of the Limp Empire. The Limpire. And the enigma of its grandeur. <laughs> That's right. After the mansion had been sold, remodeled, and brought back to something approaching its former glory, new occupants started to notice something unusual. Whispers of ghostly presences, paranormal phenomena, and uncanny happenings began to swirl around the majestic property. Among the first to report these strange incidents were the workers involved in the renovation of the building after its purchase by your buddy Dick Pointer in 75. Many workers would tell tales of seeing apparitions that would suddenly appear, then just as quickly vanish. Others reported hearing odd sounds, like the echoing of phantom footsteps in the hallway. Tools would vanish, only to be found in places far from where they were originally kept. More disturbingly, many felt an eerie sense of being watched, as though unseen eyes were observing their every move. The unnerving phenomena did not cease after the renovation was completed. Instead, they continued and seemed to intensify when the mansion began its new life as a restaurant and inn. Staff members working in the building reported experiences that echoed those of the construction workers. Invisible entities seemed to take particular delight in flinging glasses from the bar, startling both staff and patrons alike. Doors would lock and unlock by themselves, and lights would turn on and off without human intervention. Even the piano at the bar would often start playing by itself, filling the room with melodies played by ghostly hands. There were three areas in the mansion where these inexplicable activities were particularly concentrated. The stairway, the attic, and the basement area the staff ominously referred to as the Gates of Hell. This was the place where the entrance to the caves running below the mansion and the brewery had once been located. And just a little bit of St. Louis history, the mansion if you look at it on like google maps or street view what you're looking at from the front is actually the original rear of the building the front of the building faced the other side faced uh east i guess it would be yeah and the highway was constructed there the highway kind of comes up pretty close to it yeah and that's part of why those tunnels are blocked off. Some of the blasting that they did to cut a path of the highway, you know, made them unstable. So they're, they do, I think, limited tours down there, particularly around Halloween, but they don't really, you know, the, the ballroom, I think there's a bowling alley, the pool, all that stuff is generally closed off, mm -hmm. which is a shame. It is. Go bowling with some ghosts. That'd be awesome. And some, yeah, ghosts and prostitutes. I mean, what more can you want? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd want them in the swimming pool. It'd be like, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was swimming underwater. and I got ghost gonorrhea. Ghostaria. No, I was thinking like there's a ghostly hand holding your head underwater. But Oh. Yeah. The attic is believed to be the domain of William Jr.'s illegitimate son, often referred to as the monkey face boy. This child spent his entire life sequestered in the mansion's attic and is believed to have died in his 30s and been buried in the family plot with only a small marker reading lip. So that would have been what the... 1900s. Very, very early 1900s. Okay. So then, yeah, unfortunately, people just saw it as a uh, kind of a stain. 
yep. on their genetics back then and and kept you know and, and it's not just people that may have had down syndrome uh, it, it's people that are just neurodivergent in any way you know people with autism uh, anybody you know that would have muscular muscular dystrophy or anything like that you know unfortunately would have been seen as an embarrassment back then so i mean is it awful yes it's awful i, I don't know how you could keep your child you know sequestered from everybody but that's how it was so even though it is awful and it's bad you know terrible by today's standards it was something that was accepted back in his day so i i don't want to you know have people think of this man as like he deserved to die and he deserved to you know have his life haunted and stuff like that because things were different back then but mm -hmm. anyway go ahead well today there exists no formal records acknowledging the existence of this alleged child However, rumors have long circulated suggesting that this boy, born with Down syndrome, was hidden away in the mansion's attic for his entire life. This narrative has persisted and even been fueled throughout the years despite the lack of concrete evidence. Joe Gibbons, a local historian from St. Louis, added fuel to the speculative fire. In his research, he interviewed a nanny and a chauffeur, both of whom had served the Lem family in the distant past. Their testimony served to give the rumors more credibility. They claim the boy did indeed exist and was kept in the attic quarters that also housed the servants' rooms. The tragic tale took on an even darker tone, and I've actually stayed in the attic there before. I've stayed in what was at one point a uh, servants' quarter. Nice. But I experienced nothing, or at least nothing that I knew was something that I was experiencing, if that makes any sense. Like, I heard a lot yeah, of noises, but it's like, well, there's other people staying here, so it's probably them. Same. Yeah, my experience, there was nothing. But a lot of people have had experiences, and it is a cool place to visit. Even if it's, you don't see yeah. ghosts, it's it's a cool place to go. Yeah, and the toaster ravioli there is phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> St. Louis specialty, baby. Yeah. The tragic tale took on an even darker tone. It was suggested that the boy was a product of one of William Lemp's illicit relationships, possibly with one of the many prostitutes he was known to frequent, or perhaps even a servant from the mansion. His birth was seen as a scandal and embarrassment to the prominent Lemp family, and hiding him was their solution to preserve their social standing and cloak their shame. Even today, the boy is said to make his presence known in the mansion, haunting the very space in which he was once hidden away from the world. Investigators often left toys in the room, arranged in a circle to make it more obvious if they've been moved, and invariably found them displaced the next day. Passersby even reported seeing the face of a boy peeping through the attic windows. Downstairs in the women's bathroom, which had once been William Jr.'s personal domain and boasted the first freestanding shower in St. Louis, women often reported a voyeuristic male entity. The spectral peeping Tom was believed to be the ghost of the notorious womanizer. And then there was William Sr.'s room, where guests frequently heard the sounds of someone running up the stairs and violently kicking at the door. This was eerily reminiscent of the way William Jr. had reacted on discovering his father's suicide. Even the parking lot had its own spectral visitations. A tour guide reported hearing the sounds of horses, though there was nothing visible when she looked out the window. The area, once a tethering lot for horses, seemed to echo the past in this uncanny manner. It's interesting that investigators find stuff and tour guides find stuff mm -hmm. so that's interesting but they also have a dog in the fight so tell us about the guests who dared to stay overnight guests who dared to stay overnight in the mansion reported their own share of paranormal experiences many were awakened in the dead of night by the sounds of muffled whispers sobbing or phantom footsteps pacing the hallways some even reported feeling a cold touch on their skin or their blankets being mysteriously tugged away. The Lemp family members themselves were believed to be the main perpetrators of this paranormal activity. The suicides of William Sr., Elsa, William Jr., and Charles seemed to have trapped their spirits within the mansion. And I believe uh, William III also died in the mansion in 1943. Just as a side note. Not, not a suicide, it was a heart attack, but... Doesn't help. No. 
Each spirit seemed to have its own distinct characteristics and patterns of behavior, leading paranormal enthusiasts and investigators to speculate on their identities. One of the most renowned apparitions is that of the Lavender Lady, as we talked about earlier. Lavender Lady just sounds like a Burt Bachrock song or something. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most renowned apparitions is that of the Lavender Lady or Lillian Lamp. Sightings of Lillian have frequently been reported, typically in her former bedroom, which is called the Lavender Room or the Lavender Suite, I believe now. Accompanying these sightings is the distinct, overwhelming scent of lavender, Lillian's favorite perfume. Reports suggest that Lillian's apparition appears unhappy, occasionally exhibiting a propensity to move objects or make noises, as though eternally trapped in her state of marital distress. Despite the chilling reputation of the mansion, its popularity has soared over the years, transforming it into one of the most well-known haunted places in the United States. Many ghost-hunting expeditions and psychic investigations have been conducted in the mansion, adding to its chilling lore. Paranormal reality shows have filmed in the location, including ghost hunters and ghost adventures at least, capturing evidence of the mansion's ghostly inhabitants, and the mansion is often the focus of ghost tours around St. Louis. It has been named one of America's most haunted houses by Life Magazine and other notable media outlets. The Lent Mansion stands today not just as a testament to the tragic history of a wealthy family, but also as a bridge between the physical and spiritual worlds. The mansion continues to draw in the curious, the brave, and those seeking to understand the mysteries of life after death. Yet for all its fame and notoriety, the mansion also serves a much more mundane purpose as a restaurant and inn. It provides food and lodging to St. Louis residents and visitors, carrying on the Lemp family's legacy of hospitality in its own unique way. The daily lives of the living continue to unfold within its historic walls, even as the echoes of the mansion's tragic past reverberate in its shadowed corners and the ghostly inhabitants seemingly go about their spectral routines. The Lent Mansion's history is one of mingled past and present, of life and death, of the tangible and the ethereal, making it a fascinating and morbid entry in the annals of America's most haunted places. In this way, the Lent Mansion is much more than just a historic building. It's a living testament to a family's legacy, a time capsule of a bygone era, and perhaps a portal to the other side. Dun, dun, dun. So, you got any final thoughts? I believe that there's something going on there. I do. I think that it could very well be purgatory for, you know, these unfortunate souls where it's so hard. I mean, I know in Catholicism, they believe that if you commit suicide, you know, you don't get to go to heaven. But that's not my personal belief. But it could be they're cursed like okay well you know you get 150 years of being a ghost and that's your purgatory and then you Mm. get to come to heaven so maybe it'll wear off eventually i think there's something going on there there's too much smoke for there not to be at least a little bit of fire yeah i hope that what they called the monkey face boy i really hope that's all just legend because you know nobody no matter who you are is a child at least you know i'm fine with you know hell you're a serial killer well you get to be locked in a cage the rest of your life but you know just growing up in solitude would be torture Mm -hmm. and i I hope this part of the story is is made up because that's a terrible tragedy to have to live a life that way and i think that that could be the source of the haunting is not just the suicides, but you know, if we know this about this family, like if, if I find out in, you know, 20 years that someone had been keeping a child locked in a room, that would be horrifying. You know, that would be definitely prison time. But if we know about this, what do we not know about? You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure they would have preferred to keep that a complete secret from everybody. So if we know about that, what do we not know about? But that's pretty much my my final thoughts is I hope that this, you know, young child wasn't tortured their entire life. Yeah, it's it was hard to find, you know, pretty much all the stories about the hauntings mention him. Mm -hmm. But most of the sources for the history of the family 
don't. Mm-hmm. I found one that just stated, you know, outright, you know, Charles Lamp lived alone in the mansion except for his dog, two servants, and the illegitimate son mm-hmm. of William Jr., who died in whatever year, you know, died sometime in his 30s and was buried in that plot. Yeah. And then another one where it mentions this specific historian who had done research on it, you know, and it added that like very much as a side note, like it did all the rest of the story. And then it was like, by the way, there also might have been, you know, an illegitimate son that was kind of hidden away in there. Well, and people, you know, nowadays are like, well, how could you hide a child? Well, I mean, first of all, kids weren't born in hospitals back then. So it's not like there would be doctors and staff and whoever they have to like verify birth certificates and stuff like that. The kid's born at the house and you've got enough money to spend $36,000 a day. You don't need to worry about, you know, getting government aid for that child or, or, you know, you know what I mean? Like nowadays it would be really hard, but back then if you had a shit ton of money, I mean, you didn't have to report that you had a kid. Well, you, mm-hmm. you should have, but, you know. You could probably find a way to hide it. Yeah, it was do- more doable back then than it would be nowadays. Yeah, you give the midwife like $1,000 and they just don't mention it. Sounds simple enough. The thing that I keep thinking about with this is limestone. Because mm. I think yeah. with stone tape theory, limestone is one of the ones that's thought to be a conductor. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories I read before about Alton is I, I read this research talking about how there was a Civil War prison mm-hmm. in Alton. And when it was dismantled, they used oh, the yeah. stone, which was, I think, limestone as well. They used it in you know parts of the city. Other buildings. Yeah, and in the older parts, I mean... If you're in the St. Louis area and you've never been to Alton and specifically Middletown, there's a bunch of houses up there that are from the mid to early 1800s in some cases. Mm -hmm. And some of the little like retaining walls that are by the yard. So, you know, kind of stop the yard from encroaching on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. That's some of that is supposedly some of that limestone and some of the houses use it in their foundations and things like that. Yeah, because this these researchers have tied haunting activity to houses that have stones from this prison or, you know, appear to. Mm-hmm. And if they used one for every house in all. Yeah, <laughs> to spread it out. Yeah. If uh, well, I was reading about it, there was a because I was actually looking at a house there. I was looking to buy one at one point. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of said, like, you know, the prison was dismantled during this period. So houses from like this year to this year. And I don't remember them off the top of my head, Mm. but like those ones are likely to have at least some stones from it. But if limestone is something that really can do that kind of absorb that energy, if they were Mm. in a limestone cave having parties with prostitutes and all this stuff and the Mm. house is sitting on top of that cave, if all that stuff is true, that could help explain some of that activity. Well, you also have to look at, you know, the Lemps probably weren't the first people to use that cave. I mean, there in Cahokia is the largest earthen, I guess, construction in North American history. I mean, there was a huge tribe of natives that lived right across the river, and they could have used it as a place to stay. They could have used it as a place, you know, for where they could store things to keep them cooler too. So who knows what the history of that cave is before this. Now I realize people aren't saying that they're seeing like Native American ghosts there and whatnot, but um, that's definitely a possibility too. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm thinking it probably does have activity. I don't think that it's nearly as crazy as what people say, though. Yeah. And I put a lot of thought into your theory of, like, what you expect. You know, you want to talk I, a bit about that? I do think that there's... You kind of get what you expect sometimes. 
that if you come in with the intention that you're going to see something or experience something, you're more likely to. You're either more likely to interpret something that's not paranormal right. as something that is yeah. or whatever. Maybe maybe just having that intention makes it happen. But, you know, when I went, you know, Kim and I went and stayed there a couple of years ago and we just like we're probably mostly like grateful to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's kind of the feeling that I had. It's like, this is so cool. I'm so glad to be able to experience being in this like historic place and all that. And it was a very positive intention that I was putting out and I, I didn't have any, any kind of issues, mm-hmm. but if you're in there and you're antagonistic and you're wanting to see something then you might really stir something up. Well, and I like that you said interpreting things because like if the lights flash at my house, I never, ever, ever ever think it's a ghost but if i go to a place where everybody's like oh there's all this negative energy there's all this and then the lights flash oh that was uh the lavender lady you know it's Mm -hmm. yeah you're just going to assign things to paranormal that you wouldn't necessarily right please if you have any photos paranormal photos that you've taken at Lemp Mansion, send them in and we'll put them out for people to check out. If, if you have to circle where something is in the picture, then it's probably not a legit photo. Yeah, actually you should, uh, if you didn't see it already in the first set of notes I sent, mm-hmm. I had a YouTube link at the bottom of the document. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it it is kind of one of these things where it's like you have to look really closely, but it's it's strange evidence. I don't know if you want to look at it now. All right. I'm 30 seconds into it. I haven't seen anything. Oh, okay. I don't know how I feel about lasers 100%. Yeah, it's I don't know how I feel about most of the tools that they use for ghost hunting. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you kind of have to operate in the assumption that all of these other things work for those tools to uh-huh. do anything. Like you have to assume for like a spirit box to work that they can somehow control these frequencies or whatever. Yeah. You know, like there, there's just a lot that's up in the air. But this one appears to show a shape that is walking past this laser tripwire motion detector thing. Mm-hmm. And just kind of getting illuminated by it for a moment. Yeah, like a like a mist. It, it doesn't shine. Yeah, it's really not like it's. It. Set, yeah, it's not like it's setting off the tools. It's just you can see it because of it, and it does kind of look like a person. And you can include that in the show notes. But it's it's one of the little things that I found. Other than that, you can watch. Like I said, there's ghost adventures and ghost hunters, and a lot of them have episodes about the Lent Mansion. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna be visiting St. Louis. You know, or you're going to be even in like, uh, where's the Sally house? I think is in Lawrence, Kansas, you know, about three and a half hours away from St. Louis. Yeah. Throw the Lemp Mansion on your list because it is a fun experience. You know, like you said, there's dinner theater and stuff like that. They have overnight investigations. I'm sure all the time that you can sign up for and you know, yeah, it's about fun and excitement. I have always thought it would be cool to, you know, open up a place like a bed and breakfast or or whatever and like tell people it's haunted, but not really haunted just so they can experience what a real haunted house would be like to have, you know, speakers with that, you know, have whispers at night. Oh, um, gotcha. Something like the the door creaking and like sounds of scratching on the wall and then maybe a little, you know, light show of some sort. And, you know, I wouldn't want to deceive people and say, yes, this is truly haunted, but just to be like, this is the haunting experience. You know, this is what it would be like at a really crazy place uh, to have this kind of uh, experience. So... I don't know. It might be fun. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I've got. Get out my pub. What? All right. Well, 
We, as always, would love for you guys to like, share, and subscribe. You know, we do a lot of work. We put a lot of hours into this, even though sometimes it may not sound like it. But all we ask for you guys to do is just share, like, subscribe. If you have any evidence or thoughts on the Lemp Mansion, just send us an email at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. TikTok is at cryptique underscore podcast. YouTube is at cryptique podcast. Merch is crypticpodcaststore.com. And the wonderful Parabox mystery t-shirt subscription service link you can check that out in the show notes and thursday we will be doing an after hours on corpsewood which is a very interesting story as well so you'll want to check that out on thursday good evening crypt keepers